Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Honestly, you don't want to be taking generic legal advice from a YouTube channel or podcast in any event. On with the show. Gig is up. Why California's AB5 might just kill its gaming industry. Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing partner of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And welcome to episode number 100 of our little show, Virtual Legality. Thank you so much for joining me here. I think we've got a very interesting one today. We're talking about law and software and technology and really a whole lot more uh, because California has passed a bill really unlike any other in the nation, including at the federal level. And I think it's gonna have a long range of impacts if it is in fact signed by their governor, which I think it will be, on virtually every aspect of the economy, certainly every aspect of the economy that touches California, which is a lot. Uh, So without further ado, let's dive into episode number 100 and we will do so on a question that was posed to me on my Twitter, at Hoaglaw, I always like to answer questions and see if they will make a good virtual legality episode. This one is from Italian Clowns, and he asks, Hey, Hoaglaw, do you think this bill will affect the game industry contractors in any way? Or do you think it will only be aimed at the app contractor economy? Uber, Lyft, etc. Is there potential for other contractors to argue under the pretense of this law? And I say, well, this is news to me. I hadn't been following California's bill passages uh, of late, except with respect to the NCAA, which may be another virtual legality episode later this week. Uh, But I took a look at this article. It's in the New York Times. uh, And I said, that's a great question. I'm going to have to look at the text of the bill to see exactly what it applies to. And that's something that we're going to do here in virtual legality. As you know, we like to look at the source material rather than rely on other people's reports of what's happening. Uh, But to get a context for what's happening, I think it is a good idea to look at those reports. So I pulled up an article from Gizmodo that went live while I was sleeping at 1230 this morning, and it says gig workers win in California. Now, we're going to try to avoid political topics or politicization of this issue on this episode, uh, but I do think win is probably a bit strong. Uh, there's going to be a lot of impact from this bill. There's going to be winners. There's going to be losers. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about that in this video and podcast because that's an important part of the discussion here. Uh, but let's see why Gizmodo thinks this is a big win. In their article, after the better part of the year, California's Senate today passed AB5, legislation that is expected to unravel the contractor business model of companies like Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash. In a historic victory, workers for those companies and others like them are now likely to be considered employees, I'd say very likely when we look at the text of the bill, entitled to the benefits and protections that status conveys. The bill, which was introduced to the California State Assembly in January by Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez, still requires another pass in the Assembly and Governor Gavin Newsom's sign-off. However, he recently signaled support for the initiative and the Assembly is expected to easily pass the Senate's version. I am proud to be supporting Assembly Bill 5, which extends critical labor protections to more workers by curbing misclassification, Newsom, their governor, wrote in a Sacramento Bee op-ed published on Labor Day. The final part of this article that I wanted to read for you is just kind of a description of where the two 
political parties in California line up here. It says, while Republican lawmakers crowed that the bill picked winners and losers, the simple messaging of AB5's Senate floor jockey, Senator Maria Durazo, captured the soul of the legislation. One job should be enough. So we're going to now look at a description of what independent contractors are and what employees are, because at the end of the day, what this bill says is what you have previously determined are independent contractors are actually going to be employees for purposes of California labor law. Now, that's not necessarily going to affect every company in the in the country. It definitely won't. California can only reach those companies that have a business nexus to California that does business in California in some respect. But certainly here in virtual legality, we're talking a lot about technology. We're talking a lot about video games and the movie industry, to be fair. Uh, and all of those industries obviously have a great deal of presence in the state of California. So this is definitely going to affect them. But in order to discuss it properly, I think we need to have a baseline for what used to be the rule, what is the rule around the rest of the country, what is the rule from a federal level, so that we can see what they changed and talk about that. So I've pulled up an article here that I thought did a good job of summarizing what the current state of play is. This is from the CPA Journal. So this is really focused on taxes. And taxes are really what drives a lot of this consideration. We're going to see when we look at the California bill that they reference a number of protections and rights and things uh, that relate to being classified as an employee. But one of the things that jumps out that is clearly important to the state of California and really every state that looks at these issues is the fact that they wind up getting their unemployment insurance covered, the premiums that they need from employees, from those pots, from those buckets of money. And if you classify someone as an independent contractor, for the most part, you don't have to pay into those buckets of money. And the state of California is concerned with that. So the CPA journal is associated with taxes, is talking about your accounting and how you classify people as employees and independent contractors for that purpose. But it's an excellent baseline to just talk about the issue. So let's look at their, their overall summary. It says, classifying a worker as an employee or an independent contractor has a significant effect on the cost of employing that individual. For this reason, the IRS and Department of Labor pay close attention to worker classification issues to ensure that employers are making the right determinations. Here, the authors detail the relevant regulatory guidance and case law, the possible penalties, a lot of stuff that we're not necessarily going to go into. But the point of it is, in general, employees are people, that, as prior to this bill from California, employers, uh, employees are people that you have control over. Generally, they're people that you have in your in your office that you provide a laptop to to do their work or tools if you're in a more manual labor-oriented position. And you they do what you tell them to do. They work the hours that you tell them to work. They do exactly what you say. Maybe they have a manager directly above them that's giving them orders and a manager above that. It's an employee as you would ordinarily consider it. Independent contractors in general, especially prior to this bill from California, have been those that don't have that level of control, that generally have a contract with a company and the company asks for a deliverable of some kind, and the contractor is charged with figuring out what hours are needed to hit that deadline, how it's going to operate, what tools it's going to use. It provides perhaps its own location, its own laptop, its own everything else that it needs to get the, bu to get the business done, to get the job done. And oftentimes this is structured in my line of work as uh, a master services agreement and a statement of work, which will have projects listed, and that those will be the deliverables that are delivered to a company. Not always, uh, but the issue here is that how you determine whether an employee is an employee or an independent contractor is very, very important to the IRS. It's very important to the Department of Labor. It's very important to the state of California or wherever you're operating. So these are things that have been discussed a lot. And so I want to talk about what the prior tests were. 
first we have the 20 factor test, which if you're familiar with the law at all, you never want to see 20 factors. That's not a great, that's not a great thing to try to comply with. Basically, whenever you have a factor test in the law, it means there's going to be a balancing of some kind. So when clients ask me about what that means, uh, it means, hey, the judge or the regulatory body is going to look at a bunch of stuff and decide whether you fall one way or the other on the scales by looking at a whole lot of things. Usually it's three factors or five factors or seven factors. 20 factors is a lot. So we're going to skim this a little bit because they overall relate to what we just talked about as the distinction between employees and contractors. But the first one is level of instruction. Do you give a lot of training to this person? The more training you give, the more they look like an employee. Uh, amount of training, which is different from level of instruction. Uh, level of instruction is essentially height of training. How, how high up the chain do you give them? What, what important stuff do you give them in terms of information versus the amount, the hours that you spend? Degree of business integration. Workers whose services are integrated into the business operations. If you're an integral part of the company actually functioning, uh, then you are more likely to be considered an employee. Now, this is a part of a balancing test, but keep this one in mind, degree of business integration, because that's what's really going to come up in California. Extent of personal services. How important is it that you personally perform the role? Because then you're more likely an employee. If we just sign up with a business and that business can assign whoever they want to us, then we're really having a contractor relationship and it's, and it's less of an employee relationship. Control of assistance is essentially, you know, how much control over the relationship do you have, how it's performed, whether you hire assistance for these people, whether you have secretarial support, for instance, for a contractor, that tends to lean more towards employee. Continuity, how long you've worked for them, flexibility of schedule, we talked about. Demands for full-time work. Are they demanding that you only work for them and that you work for them for the entire work week? That looks more like an employee. On-site services, do you have to be in their headquarters? Employee. Sequence of work, are they telling you the order that things have to happen? Requirements for reports. Everything that winds up looking like you have a significant amount of control over someone else makes that person look more like an employee. Method of payment, uh, payment of business or travel expenses, provision of tools, investment in facilities, realization of profit or loss, which is an interesting one. That goes to the economics. That says you're more likely an independent contractor if your own management decisions can result in you losing money. Employees generally can't lose money if they're performing the work, right? They can lose money on their back end, on their personal expenses. But if you're performing work for an employer, you're not supposed to be able to lose money in that role. Versus as an independent contractor, because you're managing your costs and your expenses, you should be able to lose money if you don't do a good job of managing what your company looks like. Work for multiple companies. Are you only working for this one company as an independent contractor? Then maybe you look more like an employee. If you're working for a bunch of different companies, you look more like a contractor. Availability of the public. Do you hold yourself out? Can you advertise that you're available? You look more like a contractor. Control over discharge. Do you get to determine whether your employment relationship terminates in a, in a specific way or doesn't terminate in a specific way? It, the more control you have over that, the more you look like a contractor. And so those are the 20 factors that really people looked at under the common law. That's basically how you determine whether you were an employee or an independent contractor. This is the baseline for what used to be used. It's not used even by the IRS very much anymore. They use a broader kind of interpretive uh, schematic here that you see now uh, highlighted on your screen, the newer three-factor test, newer meaning it's only marginally newer than the 20-factor test. But they've got three capacities here, behavioral control, financial control, and relationship control. And this has good descriptions in this article, so I'm going to read them for you. The behavioral control test focuses on whether the company controls or has the right to control what the worker does and how the job is done. 
Behavioral control factors include types of instruction, degree of instruction, evaluation systems, and training. So they adopted the 20-factor test, but they put them in buckets. Financial control test looks at who controls the economics of the worker's job. Being able to work for multiple employers, providing one's own tools may indicate contractor status. Factors pointing to employee status are eligibility for reimbursement of travel costs and payment based on hours worked. The financial control factors are significant investment, unreimbursed expenses, opportunity for profit and loss, availability of the services to the market, and method of payment. Finally, there's the relationship. This tests how the parties perceive each other. Providing paid vacation and retirement benefits indicates somebody's an employee, as does hiring to provide services indefinitely rather than for a specific time period. Written language stating the worker is an independent contractor is not determinative. If you've ever seen a contractor contract, you'll know that there's always a provision. There's always a paragraph that says the parties acknowledge that you are an independent contractor. You're not an employee. You're not entitled to benefits and all this other stuff. This says, and I think it's right in so far as the IRS and some other regulatory bodies have stated this in respect of specific facts and circumstances, that that provision isn't the be all end all. It's not determinative. It might be helpful. It helps to balance. If you say that you know that you're an independent contractor and then you argue later that you're not, that means something, but it still will be subject to all these balancing tests. The factors for relationship include the existence of written contracts, offering of employee benefits, permanency of the relationship, and services provided as a key activity of the business. There's that integration again. If it's integral to the business, that's going to weigh towards interpreting somebody as employee. That has always been a factor in a balancing test. Again, put a pin in that because that is what we're going to come back to for California. Finally, we're going to look at what the DOL does in under the Fair Labor Standards Act, the FLSA, and how it's been interpreting things because this is basically how California got to where it is it has gotten to this morning uh, on the vote and, and AB5. And they, talk, they look at what they call an economic realities test. And they say in the degree to which the functions of the worker are essential to the business operations, they will, be, they will be an employee. The ongoing nature of the relationship, they'll be an employee. The extent to which the worker has invested in his own materials and supplies leans towards contractor. The control the employer has over the worker lean towards employee. The degree to which the employer affects the profit and loss opportunities of the worker, again, that leans towards employee, but the existence of profit and loss leads towards contractor. And the level of skill, judgment, and initiative required for the functions performed by the worker. This basically says they want people to have to exert a significant amount of professionalism or judgment to really have that contractor status. This is leaning away from low-end line workers having a contractor status that they should generally be treated as employees under this rule. And there's a whole lot of documentation around this. I, I've pulled up right now uh, an article that I'm not going to read, which is the United States Department of Labor Wage and Hour Division Administrator's Interpretation Number 215-1 from July of 2015 that talks about a lot of this stuff and I think really started to inform how California wound up interpreting what they interpreted both in their Supreme Court in respective wage orders, which we're going to see, and in the bill that they just passed. And this goes to, and I'm just going to read the headlines here, the economic realities factors guide the determination whether the worker is truly an independent business or is economically dependent on the employer, with the first section being, is the work an integral part of the employer's business being very, very important, a heavy thumb on the scales for determining that somebody is an employee, is if they are integral to the business. Now, there's two things before we get into the California bill that I want to point out on this. One, it's still only a factor. It's part of a balancing test. As a matter of fact, this various this specific paper actually highlights one of the things that 
creates this as a balancing test. It says, as a, a district court held in an enforcement action by the department, these factors are to be considered and weighed against one another in each situation, but there is no mechanical formula for using them to arrive at the correct result. Rather, the factors are simply a tool to assist in understanding individual cases with the ultimate goal of deciding whether it is economically realistic to view a relationship as one of employment or not. In other words, until California acted this morning, there was always an understanding that this is a very difficult question. For Pete's sake, they had 20 factors that they looked at before they put those in three buckets. And now the DOL and FLSA are looking at it in a different kind of way, but still in buckets. So it was always the understanding that this is a tricky thing to figure out. And even if the work is integral to the employer's business, that was going to be one part of balancing towards employee, but that could be mitigated by other parts that balance towards independent contractor. They bring their own tools. They set their own hours. They work on a project basis, whatever it might be. And what we will see in California is that they have, and as soon as the governor signs this, this will be specific as starting next year, they have eliminated the balancing component of this test and instead made these things very specific and absolute. So let's take a look at the bill itself. This is still, I think, subject to minor amendment. I don't pretend to be an expert on the California legislative uh, policies and procedures, uh, but I've pulled up the text in the California Legislative Information website of what was read and what appears to have passed the Senate uh, yesterday, which is an assembly bill. That's what AB stands for here, AB5 uh, for the state. And we can see here they've got a legislative digest. We don't care about that as much because that's just a summary of what's happening. But let's take a look at what they actually say, the reason why they did this. They say the legislature finds and declares all of the following. On April 30th, 2018, the California Supreme Court issued a unanimous decision in Dynamex Operations West versus Superior Court of Los Angeles. In its decision, the court cited the harm to misclassified workers who lose significant workplace protections, the unfairness to employers who must compete with companies that misclassify, and the loss to the state of needed revenue from companies that use misclassification to avoid obligations such as payment of payroll taxes, payment of premiums for workers' compensation, social security, unemployment, and disability insurance. The misclassification of workers as independent contractors has been a significant factor in the erosion of the middle class and the rise in income inequality. It is the intent of the legislature in enacting this act to include provisions that would codify the decision of the California Supreme Court in Dynamex and would clarify the decision's application in state law. It is also the intent of the legislature in enacting this act to ensure workers who are currently exploited by being misclassified as independent contractors instead of recognized as employees have the basic rights and protections they deserve under the law including a minimum wage, workers' compensation if they are injured on the job, unemployment insurance, paid sick leave, and paid family leave. By codifying the California Supreme Court's landmark unanimous Dynamex decision, this act restores these important protections to potentially several million workers who have been denied these basic workplace rights that all employees are entitled to under the law. And then it continues on with a few other references to the Dynamex uh, decision. Now, just as a lawyer, and this isn't something that happens in Michigan, it doesn't happen in many of the statutes that I read in terms of doing research for my clients. It's unusual to have direct references to a Supreme Court or other court decision in your legislation. It's not terribly useful to those who are trying to interpret the law and what happened without going to and figuring out what that actual decision said. 
Now, we're going to look at the first section, which is essentially a codification of what they did. But I think it's also important to kind of note that Dynamax Operations West was concerned specifically with their regulatory wage infrastructure, that they were setting wages in, in part of what California did. And this now takes that and applies it overall to the entirety of their labor code. So it broadens what that court did in terms of its application. Uh, and that's kind of elided to uh, a little bit here in how they describe it. But you can also see in what they've included here that they are very focused on uh, getting the payroll taxes, the payment of premiums for workers' compensation, Social Security, unemployment and disability insurance. They want these people to get minimum wage, workers' compensation, unemployment insurance, paid sick leave and paid family leave. And all of those things are, without a doubt, I don't even think that the legislators that approved this would deny this. Those are all going to increase the cost of having labor perform the tasks that they are currently performing in California in these functions where they will not be classified as an employee. Uh, and so that's going to increase cost. That's going to increase cost uh, uh, across a number of industries, across a number of businesses. We're talking about this from a game industry and software perspective. But if these rules apply to those industries, and we're going to take a look at why I think that they do, uh, then that's going to increase costs across the board. That's going to have uh, certainly some folks that are independent contractors be turned into employees, but a number of folks be let go because this doesn't make sense uh, for what value they're providing to the company. Now, you can look at this and you can say, hey, Rick, I agree with why they did this. I can agree with the fact that all these people need all of these benefits and things of that nature. I can understand that and I can respect that. I will say that in general, I'm in favor of flexibility. I'm in favor of someone that wants to say, hey, I want to be treated as an independent contractor. I want to have maximal flexibility and I can leave if I want to leave. Uh, and I want that option to be up to me that I don't want these benefits if I don't want to give that much value to the company, if I want to split my time between two businesses or five businesses or stay at home and work only a little bit. I want to have that option. And essentially the state of California has taken that option away. Uh, and so I think that's an important kind of factor in the discussion here. And certainly it's a factor in the fact that California touches so much of the country in terms of its economies, that there's going to be a lot of decisions made at a lot of high levels about exactly what the relationship with California should look like across a number of industries. And if this act passes, I suspect it will have a sea change effect. It will have a significant, significant transformative effect on what California's economy looks like and what interstate commerce with California looks like coming out uh, from the other states, how much uh, touches, how much business nexus these other companies have with California. Let's take a look at the rule that they actually codified. For purposes of the provisions of this code and the Unemployment Insurance Code and for the wage orders of the Industrial Welfare Commission, a person providing labor or services for remuneration payment shall be considered an employee rather than an independent contractor. So they, the, the default rule, just kind of starting, the starting point is people will be considered employees. That is the default rule. Then you have a burden of proof to do the following. Unless the hiring entity demonstrates that all of the following conditions are satisfied. So let's start there. As we just said, default rule is employee. Then you have the burden of demonstrating to us that everything here applies in order to treat someone as an independent contractor. The person is free from the control and direction of the hiring entity in, in connection with the performance of the work, both under the contract for the performance of the work. And in fact, not has limited control, not has a balance of control, is free from control. Now that while looks like it will probably wind up with a significant litigation in and of itself. But that's not actually what I wanted to focus on. The, what I wanted to focus on was B here. The, per, the person performs work that is outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business. 
So you are an employee unless your employer can prove, can demonstrate to the state of California that you are performing work outside the usual course of the employer's business. How does that affect video games? How does that affect software and technology? Entirely. Virtually every contractor that works for a video game company is going to be working for that company to help make the product that they wish to sell to the, to the public. So that is going to be the usual course of the hiring entity's business. There's probably some stuff around the edges that wouldn't apply here. You know, if you've got a software firm that you're contracting for to help do your back-end accounting uh, practices at Insomniac or Sony or wherever, probably that comes outside of the usual course of your business. But if you're hiring a programmer to help program uh, or script that next encounter and you're bringing people in to work on that game or you're bringing artists in to help concept out for that game on a contractor basis and you're headquartered in California, I think you now immediately have issues. And I'm limiting my talk to the, to the software and the gaming industry because those are very, very contractor-focused industries because of the way they work, because they are project-based, because they tend to have this need to uh, bulk up their services when a project is nearing completion and then kind of wind down uh, between projects, that that's very similar to kind of the motion picture industry or the television industry or other creative endeavors that they use contractors a lot to help have that kind of uh, increase the size of their workforce and then decrease the size of the workforce when they're not working on projects, that this will impact them unless we can find an exception. We're going to see there's about a, a dozen exceptions uh, to what this will apply to. But unfortunately, I don't think any of them kind of fall under the ambit of video games or, or software in general. Finally, you also have to prove that the person is customarily engaged in an independently established trade, occupation, or business of the same nature as that involved in the work performed. In other words, you also have to establish that they are doing this uh, generally, that it's not just for you. This is kind of similar to what we saw in the 20-factor test and the three buckets test of being open to the public to perform these services. You kind of have to show that they do this for a living and not just as a software coder uh, for video game company X. And that's the new rule. It looks a lot like the old rule. I can imagine some people that are reading this uh, or reading the articles on this today look at this and say, Rick, that's pretty similar to what we just talked about. But the main thing to really kind of focus on and this would apply regardless of which factors they picked, but these are the factors that they picked, that this is not a balancing test anymore. You have to show every single one of these prongs, A, B, and C, and B is essentially brand new. While we've talked about being integral to the business, this doesn't limit it to being integral. This limits it only to being performing services that are in the usual course of the company's business, and it also makes it mandatory. In the balancing test, basically, you can be integral to the business, but if there are a lot of other things that are significant, that, that weigh towards independent contractor status, then you're going to be treated as an independent contractor. Here, that is completely foreclosed to you. If you can't show that the person is not performing work that is uh, in the usual course of your business, then you are going to have to treat them as an employee under California law. And that's going to apply to basically everybody that has any touch points uh, with California. Now, let's look at some of the exceptions because they are interesting. Subdivision A, which is the rule, uh, and the holding in Dynamax versus Superior Court of Los Angeles does not apply to people that work in insurance, physicians, surgeons, dentists, podiatrists, psychologists, or veterinarians, so the medical professions, lawyer, architect, engineer, private investigator, or accountant, so those are the licensed professionals uh, in the state of California, although I, I'm always uh, keen to note that most, for the most part, when there's a law that takes away flexibility 
and you want to figure out exactly which side is uh, happier with the existence of the law. Always look to see where the lawyers put themselves. Uh, and in this case, the lawyers who write the laws uh, looked at this and said, hey, we want to be exempt from the application here. And if you look at Hogue Law, you know, what do we actually do? We are independent contractors, right? We sign contracts with everybody. We perform services. We absolutely set our own rates and we do all these other things. But I will tell you right now, part of my business in Michigan, because that's where I'm barred, is to consult with other law firms and to help uh, other lawyers uh, talk through some of the issues that I'm an expert at and maybe they're not expert at and help them talk about what they're doing and what kind of things they should be saying to their clients. And those law firms are my clients and I have a contract with them and I set my own rates and I obviously do my own work and I have my own office and everything else. But those law firms are primarily in the business of providing legal advice and legal services. And I'm providing legal services to them. If I were not exempt and this law were in Michigan, I would have to think that I would be have to be deemed an employee of that law firm just by virtue of that relationship, which of course reduces my flexibility. And ultimately for me would mean that I'm just not going to take on that job anymore. I'm not going to have that role anymore because I don't want to be treated as an employee to that company. I don't want to be subject to whatever restrictions on limitations, on uh, additional taxes, on hours, on use of tools, on services that would uh, go with all of that for working for those law firms. And so I think that's something that you have to take into account. Um, I think it's all well and good that a lot of people want to be treated as employees and they want to get those benefits, whether they work at Uber or Lyft or elsewhere. And I think if that's what they want, they can, they can push for these laws like this. But there are going to be other people that aren't going to want that. And one thing that I would like to see if I were in the business in California and I was a legislator there is an opt out. OK, if this is great for everybody, that's great. Awesome. Wonderful. Uh, but if I as an individual don't want to be treated as an employee and I want to be treated as an independent contractor, I should have a waiver provision. Hey, I'm allowed to tell the employee. I'm allowed to tell the state of California. I don't want to be treated as an employee. And that should be okay. Now, that's never going to happen for a number of reasons. Certainly, the people that are in favor of a move like this are going to say, well, the companies could pressure them to say that they're independent contractors. That's undoubtedly true in some cases. Uh, but also, uh, also, we saw at the top of this bill, California is very interested in getting the revenues from the various employment taxes uh, that they collect from employees and not from independent contractors. So California has a vested interest in having more employees and fewer independent contractors, which is really one of the reasons you see this. Other exempt groups include securities broker-dealers, direct salespersons, commercial fishermen working on an American vessel. Uh, so those are the basics for who's exempt. You also have folks that are in a contract to provide professional services. You say, okay, hey, that might be video game developers, but these only apply to marketing, administrators of human resources, travel agent services, graphic design. So some people involved in video games are probably going to be okay, graphic designers, grant writers, fine artists, agents who are licensed by the United States Department of Treasury to practice before the Internal Revenue Service, payment processing agents, services provided by a still photographer so long as they don't provide their employer 35 uh, photos per year, and also a specific clause, which is specific to California, which you would expect. This clause is not applicable to an individual who works on motion pictures, which includes but is not limited to projects produced for theatrical television, internet streaming for any device, commercial productions, broadcast news, music videos, and live shows, whether distributed live or recorded for later broadcast, regardless of the distribution platform. Yes, it's no surprise that the state of California has exempted its motion picture industry, which it is most known for, but it is worth noting that the creation of software, the creation of video games in particular, are very 
very similar to the creation of motion pictures in, in respect of having short-term contracts, in respect of having relationships uh, that require this kind of increase and decrease kind of breathing of a company in order to meet project requirements. And so it's interesting that they can see, obviously, that it should apply to motion pictures, that, it should, that motion pictures should be exempt from the application of this rule, but not so much video games, not so much software development, not so much tech. And Silicon Valley is going to have to take a look at all of this to determine whether it's going to continue to operate in California in the way that it has done in the past because it, it applies to it. Other exempt services are freelance writers, editors, or newspaper cartoonists, again with the 35 submissions limitations. Licensed manicurists, barbers, cosmetologists, those kinds of folks. Uh, and these all only apply. These all only get exempted from this rule if they have an individual business location, they maintain a business license, they set their own rates, they set their own hours, and they are customarily engaged in the same type of work performed for another that they would perform in general for the public. Uh, so you have to have a real kind of consulting agency to be an independent contractor. You can't just be an individual that works in this capacity, even in one of these professional services. So a graphic designer essentially has to have, uh, you know, Bob's Graphic Design LLC that, yes, can work for graphic designing for uh, somebody involved in video games, but also has to open themselves up to the public and potentially have another role for a different company. And certainly if you are a video game company and you're looking at these and you're going to try to fall under one of these exceptions, if you are risk averse and legal legal sides of things are always risk averse, you're going to say, hey, can you show me a couple other contracts with a couple other folks so we can make sure that you're going to meet this requirement? Because otherwise we can't risk you accidentally be treating it as an employee later because that not only has us paying all these amounts and increasing your cost 30% of the company, it will also have us having to pay penalties to the state of California. And so we can't go down that road. And so we need you to have uh, these very kind of specific qualifications in order for us to even hire you on an independent contractor basis, because otherwise we can't take that risk. That's going to be something that companies look at a lot. They also say they do not apply to the following, which are subject to a different code in California, the Business and Professions Code, real estate licensees, repossession agencies, and they don't apply, this rule doesn't apply to a bona fide business-to-business -business contracting relationship. So that's if any entity contracts to provide services to another entity, the determination of employee or independent contractor status will be governed by Borello. And this is, again, another reference that which we've passed over as we've discussed this law. Uh, but it's another reference to another Supreme Court decision, which basically follows up on the common factors test, which we talked about earlier in this video. Again, it's not a great way to write laws. You don't really want to incorporate um, court cases into your law that way because somebody who's, who's not versed in what you're talking about doesn't understand what's going on. And the law should always, above all, be clear so that you can comply with it if you are desirous of doing so. But it says for these business-to-business -business relationships, the business service provider has to show they're free from control, that they're providing services to the business rather than to the customers of the contracting business, and that the contract with the business service provider is in writing. The business service provider has the required business license. They maintain their own location. They're customarily engaged in an independently established business of the same nature to others. The business service provider actually contracts with other businesses. So you can't just say you're open. You have to actually contract with others. You advertise and hold yourself out for that function. You provide your own tools and you can negotiate your own rates and you set your own hours. Uh, so this might be a way that the video game industry and the software industry can work with kind of referral services in the way that they currently do and try to fall under these buckets. 
it's going to potentially be a problem even in that capacity when you start talking about providing services directly to the business rather than to the customers uh, and how exactly the function of what is actually a product that goes out to the customers is going to be treated for this purpose. You've got a whole other host of issues. I think this is probably the most likely exemption that you could see people using is constructing their software contracting, constructing their coding and other video game related endeavors in a business and trying to get under this exemption. Uh, but you are going to see, even with that, a general reformation and transformation of what that industry looks like just to comply with this law. And whenever you have that kind of transformation to comply with the law, rather than just kind of on its own nature and in the competitive environment, you're going to have a loss in, in, in profits. You're going to have an increased cost in what that is, because otherwise it would be organized in that fashion to begin with. Uh, that's just the nature of having laws that regulate industries. And that can be okay if you think that the, the benefits outweigh the costs. But that is going to happen. Some people are going to lose their jobs in this concepting. And that's going to happen, it appears, in the video game industry and in the software development industry. So it's worth paying attention to uh, if you're at all interested in those industries because so much of them live in California. It also says it doesn't apply to uh, folks working in the construction industry if they meet a certain number of qualifications. It doesn't apply to referral agencies and service providers if it doesn't meet a number of these qualifications. But it's worth noting what a referral agency means in this context. You might think, hey, Rick, that sounds like what you were just talking about with respect to video games. And it does. But it says a referral agency is a business that connects clients with service providers that provide graphic design, photography, tutoring, event planning, minor home repair, moving, home cleaning, errands, furniture assembly, animal services, dog walking, dog grooming, web design, picture hanging, pool cleaning, or yard cleanup. Couple areas there that could apply generally to tech in graphic design and web design, but overall, they don't want this exception to be used. And ideally, they probably don't want the business to business exception to be used as a kind of proxy to a referral agency for things that get to a higher level of professional services, actual software coding, things that d dig deep into the creation of the application, graphics design, web design, fine. Other referral agencies, not okay. That also, I don't see anything that uh, would talk about art uh, and, and those kinds of things that would have to be provided to a company on a concept basis uh, as well. So obviously, when this bill passes, when this is signed into legislation, you're going to have a lot of lawyers looking at it, certainly a lot of lawyers making a lot of money for a lot of multinational, billion-dollar firms, hundreds of millions of dollars on the line. They're going to look at a lot of ways that they can get exempted. They're going to look at a lot of ways that they have to transform the way their company looks. Uh, and that is going to be something that's very, very important uh, in the video game industry and the software industry in general uh, because of how many contractors are used in technology. I pulled up an article here, uh, which I don't necessarily love. I think it takes a lot of um, uh, assumptions on how the IRS and how the DOL uh, treats the determination of independent contractors and employees, but it's useful for the raw math of the whole thing. This is a Polygon article called The Game Industry's Disposable Workers, and I've highlighted a section here that just talks about the percentages, and this was as of uh, 2016, it says, according to employment agency Target CW, an estimated 10 to 15 percent of people working in the creative departments of medium and large game developers are not actual employees. They are contractors hired for short periods of time and then let go. And when we look at that, that is limited to medium and large game developers. Independent game developers are going to have a similar issue. A lot of them we see are kind of built remotely now at this point, all on a contractor relationship. Uh, and so this is going to continue to be an issue, 10 to 15% as of 2016. And I believe 
they talk about it increasing. It says Target CW attracts would-be employees looking for work while also trawling places like LinkedIn, seeking people with the right skills for clients. According to its CEO, the number of contractors going to game companies is increasing by 30% every year. Obviously, this is three years out of date at this point, but even if it was 10 to 15% and it increased at all, you're looking at potentially something like a quarter of game developers uh, and game studios being uh, ruled on a contractor basis rather than an employee basis. And if that all changes for California-based entities, that is going to increase their costs massively. And you're going to see a major, major shift in how they have to treat their own companies, how they have to treat the development of their games. And like I said at the top of this video or in the middle of this video, that can be okay with you. You can think it's all worthwhile. I'm telling you that it will have a significant transformative effect if this all goes into play as it stands right now. And that's worth watching uh, because if a number of people lose their jobs, uh, the people that are winners that get to be employees, that's great. There's going to be a lot of people that would be okay being independent contractors that are no longer going to be allowed to do so. And you always have to consider that when you're thinking about these rules and these, and these laws and these regulations, uh, because there are going to be people that are essentially left out on the street because they can't provide the value. They don't want to provide the value. They don't want to be treated as an employee. They want to be an independent contractor. And yes, that applies to Uber. That applies to Lyft. That applies to DoorDash and all these things that this appears to be aimed at. But because of the way that California wrote this law, because of the fact that they wrote it so broadly and applicable to virtually every industry in its entirety, then they are going to have to reflect on that in the game industry. They're going to have to reflect on that in the software and tech and app creation industries about how they are going to work, how they are going to function. And I wouldn't be surprised to see a number of these companies say, hey, there's no real reason for people that are all in a room with blackout curtains that are working on computers to operate in California if they can avoid it. There's no real reason why we shouldn't move to Nevada, why we shouldn't move to even some place with a lesser cost of living than any place, even remotely close to the West Coast. Those are going to be discussions that have to be had because of these laws. And that's going to be an interesting thing to follow. Will a lot of people move? I don't know. I can't say. But this is going to be the kind of law, the kind of rule that really forces the fiduciary duty of those boards of directors, the fiduciary duty of those officers at the corporate level or at the limited liability company level to examine and evaluate how much it makes sense to stay in the location that they are currently operating in if they have to transform 30% of their workforce or 20% or 10% of their workforce from contractors to employees by virtue of the fact that essentially no one is working for them outside of their usual course of business. So this represents a sea change. I think it's a fundamental one that is significant enough for episode 100 of Virtual Legality. That's been Virtual Legality for today. If you like this, please like, please subscribe. We are talking about this kind of thing all the time. We just talked about corporate messaging with respect to Spider-Man and Star Wars. We talked about what YouTube's doing to comply with COPA and taking away comments and notifications from kids' directed channels. We occasionally do postmortems on creative stuff. You see one from Control there on your screen. But we do this all the time. We'd very like to, uh, to have you. We'd like to have you in our discussions and to our videos. Uh, and please do share it around if you think anybody else might be interested. Otherwise, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it on a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality.